What is going on, Energy Strong Nation? It is your host and co-host, David Ramsonwood and Mike Umbro. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm excellent. How are you doing, DRW? I am doing great. I'm excited to be back on air with you today. We have a special guest coming in later in the show, uh, Brian Daly, uh, who is a senator from California. And you might be surprised to find out he is actually a Republican. There are, in fact, Republicans in California. They're very, very hard to find. But before we get into that, we want to catch up on all the last couple of weeks news. Mike, what have you been watching in the world of energy uh, that is interesting, intriguing, scratch your head ish? And let's go from there. You know, the, the most recent thing that comes to mind is the talk of Biden now that he cannot get Joe Manchin on board with climate legislation issuing climate executive orders. And I put a tweet out yesterday. What if the Biden Newsom administration issues an executive order, you know, banning ICE vehicle sales by 2035, banning hydraulic fracturing by 2026 and phasing out um I forget the third thing, but it was something extreme that I wrote. And, you know, I just feel like it's it's happening. And California politics are just so uh, nasty and contagious with Democrats that um, I'm I'm almost fearful of what the administration could cook up uh, California-esque. Well, well, we'll come back to that. The other thing that I was watching this week is, is as most people saw, uh, President Biden, who was was going to end the pariah status of, of Saudi Arabia uh, as he entered office in 2020, really shunned MBS, shunned the UAE and uh, delayed his visit uh, with the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman until last week. Uh, there was a very awkward fist bump. You and I should do like an air fist bump right now on camera for those who are watching. Um, it, 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 it wasn't it wasn't a good look. And then and, and it is on top of the, the Nord Stream pipeline out of Russia into Germany has been down for 10 days of maintenance. So those are the things I'm watching. Let's start with what you're talking about, the climate executive um, uh, order executive. We seem to be ruling everything by emergency order these days. No one actually wants to go to Congress or to the Senate when there's a block. So the House passes these these very virtue signaling bills that will never pass. And Joe Manchin seems to be the most powerful man in America. Uh, this bill is supposed to be a $300 billion subsidy for specifically the wind, the solar, and the EVs. And I would point people to David Blackman, uh, who's a great writer for, for Forbes, has an article out on it this morning, just talking about can he do an executive order, an emergency order, and then are we really subsidizing the correct energy sources? Mike, what do you think about these these ongoing debates of subsidies and fossil fuel subsidies and, and what a subsidy is and levelized cost of energy? Let's talk about that. Yeah, no, we get, we get grouped in on these subsidies somehow as a fossil fuel industry, and we really don't get free money. We don't just get hundreds of billions of dollars thrown into our industry. There are tax uh, code, uh, you know, that we, that we can take advantage of. Well, it's, but it, I would, you say, take advantage. It is accelerated depreciation. So if I build a building and I have 30 years to build the, to depreciate the building and I spend $10 million, even though the building might last 50 years, I can depreciate it over 30 years as an example. Um, if I buy, if I buy furniture for my Airbnb that we were talking about before on air, I believe the, I can depreciate that furniture over five years in oil and gas. And, and as a, as an operator and as an owner in non-op working interest myself, um, 
we flow through the intangible drilling credits, the IDCs, get flowed through to be able to depreciate off current income, but it means that you don't have any depreciation for that asset base in the future. So it's an accelerated tax benefit that people get with research and development, manufacturing, hard labor, buildings, etc. So to call that a subsidy is crazy. Yet when it comes to wind and solar, these are true and electric vehicles in particular. These are if you buy a Tesla, we will give you a tax credit of $12,500 off of the tax you owe. That is definitively and actually a payment for buying that car. Exactly. Exactly. And so there's a huge difference. We get lumped into this and then we go out going back to Saudi, then we go out and say, somehow the American people are foolish enough to think, well, Saudi's producing this in a responsible manner. We should go over there and kiss ass to MBS and ask him for more oil rather than go to Denver, Midland, Bakersfield, our, our Tulsa, wherever you want to go, pick, an, pick a basin in the United States. And um, it's just so amazing to me that the politicians feel like they're pulling one over or whatever they think they're doing. I don't think even, you know, moderate Democrats believe this nonsense. And I, I'm just, it's, it's, I think it's all going to switch back around here in 2024, but how bad does it get before that happens? Well, it, I mean, certainly the midterms are going to stand in. And I think that the Democrats must feel some urgency. The fact that they're trying to say, Roe v. Wade is on the ballot. Gun control is on the ballot. You know, we're not going to digress into some of those other topics, but but certainly there's a lot of panic heading into November. Uh, Joe Manchin himself is very interesting because he he is moderate. He's from the state of of uh, West Virginia, uh, big coal producing thing. A lot of guys, a lot of the Democrats like to like Bernie Sanders was out this week saying he's sabotaging Biden's climate agenda. But again, like when I think about the filibuster, and this isn't a filibuster issue per se, but if you can't get 60 out of 100 senators to believe that your bill is moderate enough, that it captures enough of the middle, you should not be getting a bill passed. And it's truly remarkable that we've degenerated into this this one Joe Manchin, because without him, the, the, the bill that the 50 Republicans will vote against um, so, so what do you think, just for, for some fun speculation, if you had a Ron DeSantis, Joe Manchin ticket for president in 2024, is that an unbeatable ticket? I think so. I haven't thought of that one because I've been thinking in my head, is it going to be Newsom against Manchin uh, in that primary? But that ticket... That would be amazing. I would like that personally. You know, I would too. And and if you go back, um, Kasich and Hickenlooper, governor of Ohio, Democrat, uh, Republican, governor of uh, Colorado, Democrat, although oil and gas, and he's switched, switched a little bit as a senator to be more progressive to win Colorado votes. But nonetheless, they had talked about a joint moderate ticket. And, and to me, Manchin would get crushed running in the Democratic primaries because he is so moderate and the primaries are so extreme. But but with a DeSantis and then you bring him on the Republican side, really what you're doing is you're bringing all the moderate Democrats over and, and saying, you know, we'll have some balance and we'll, we'll address these issues. It would be a very interesting ticket. So 
Clearly, the next three months are going to have a lot of action potentially in Washington with bills coming forward, virtual signaling ahead of the, the uh, midterms. But we talk about MBS. So Biden goes over, does this awkward fist bump. The reality is, and we've talked about this on the show before, Saudi Arabia produces 10 million out of the world's 100 million barrels a day. Russia produces 10 million out of the world's 100 million barrels a day. And Canada and the United States combined produce around 15, 16 million barrels. That's 36%. And in those jurisdictions, two of the four are doing everything they can to shut down oil and gas activity, which, which is totally moving the power structure over to Saudi Arabia, to Russia. What do you think, if you were strategically only, not for national security, not for interest, but strategically only, if you were the Saudis, what would you do? How would you respond to Biden's visit? Um, what would your action be if you were MBS? I think it. I think it'd be kind of what he did. You know, he kind of what I took out of that whole thing was, you know, eh, I'll I'll try to get to 13 million. It's just kind of like I've been float. He's been floating that for a year or more. Um, and, and basically, could we get to 13 million? Maybe we might try, but we probably won't do anything. I would do nothing. I would, I would make, I would put hay in the barn right now. I would just be making cash, printing money like they're doing and doing whatever I wanted to do. I really don't see how the United States or Canada, how we have any leverage given what you're stated, that we have this vocal daily campaign saying, oh, the climate is warming and we can't produce. I mean, so A, absolutely 100% factually correct. I agree. And B, I think it ties very strongly with the U.S. producer. And, and, and so clearly this administration does not want well, you know, even even as they say, well, we need to produce faster. And as they they got angry at, at the retailers of gasoline saying you should lower your prices because there is a tweet the White House put out, I think, um, earlier this week or over the weekend that said that showed that the price of oil had fallen substantially. And therefore, why hasn't gasoline prices fallen, even though it's like a WTI future? gasoline was purchased a few months ago it got refined it got trucked it got purchased so you're only dealing with high pricing i mean it's the lack of of economic education is is beyond anything but but i wrote a post in january of 2021 and i called it the great shrug i i i was gonna pull it up and, and read it but the concept of the great shrug was look there's surplus capacity from opec from um, and arguably from Russia, and that in 2014, when they didn't like it, they turned the tap up, crushed oil prices, oil and gas companies in the U.S. went bankrupt. In 2020, just ahead of COVID, March 6th, Russia said, we're not going to comply with OPEC. They said, we're going to keep our, our production numbers the same, even as world demand looked like it was coming down for coronavirus. And the Saudis said, cool, we're going to 12 million barrels a day. And so they upped it, Russia upped it, and oil, as we saw, fell to negative 37 a barrel only a month and, and 10 days later. And so to me, the advice is, number one, OPEC's bare capacity, for all intents and purposes, needs to go away in order for the U.S. to produce in a, in a reasonably fair market that they don't, they're not subject to nation states upping and downing. And number two, that until the consumer, and I said this very definitively, until the consumer is yelling at the politicians over $6, $8, $10 a gallon, until the consumer is saying, 
I have a fire bowl outside connected to natural gas. And now for me to turn it on for 30 minutes, it's costing me 10 bucks. It used to cost me two bucks. Like that needs to change. And until everybody feels the pain of climate policy, American producers should not contribute more production. They should they should manage their balance sheet. They should consolidate. They should get as much inventory as they can. They should grow their international positions. But that that is the plan they should do. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think I think that plan is exactly right from a producer standpoint. California, the majors and the big independents out here have effectively been operating like that for 10 plus years because of the craziness that California has on the policy side. So Chevron era, which is uh, Shell and Exxon, you know, they operate at $50 a barrel. Their, their plans do not change at, no matter what the price is. And I think, I think that, you know, conservative approach is, is what producers have to do because these policies are so, up and down and so unpredictable um you just you just have to plan for uh constant um you know wind at your face it's constant headwind it's is what it is effectively and i think i saw the opec report say oh we're gonna we as a world are gonna demand was it 2.7 million barrels more next year so even if they're able to ramp up, demand's going up. So does that even really change the, the price deck very much? If, if demand goes up 3 million barrels and they pump another 3 million, what changes there? So uh, I think you do see operators just kind of say, okay, we just got to make money. We have to survive. Well, and we're seeing out of Europe, which is a great pivot to Europe. I mean, they continue to say conserve, have less hot showers, drive less, heat less, turn your thermostat up. Texas with ERCOT, clearly the, you know, um, relative to nameplate capacity of wind being 35 gigawatts, they were producing in a low wind time too. And obviously demand is surging during the day. So you have to manage that. We don't have storage, but, but Europe is, is feeling a pinch and going back to Pardon me, July 11th, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which delivers a substantial amount of Russian gas into the German market, was shut down for 10 days of annual maintenance. Today, as we record this, is July 20th. Tomorrow is the day they're supposed to come back on. I'm curious if you were a betting man, and obviously we'll be able to test by the time the podcast comes out, but if you were a betting man, do you think that Nord Stream opens on time? And if on time at capacity, it was at before shutdown. I think on time at a reduced capacity is my guess. I think, I think that's a great hedge. I don't disagree. I think that it's, it's just enough of a poke and a prod um, that, that without them actively sabotaging their pipeline for a ready-made excuse, it probably gets Europe too angry. So I totally agree with you on that. That's a good call. But I, I, I remain, I am, I've coined this phrase, I'm calling this Putin's two weeks to flatten the sanctions. And, and I truly believe coming out of this on the 21st, as we're in the hottest time in Europe, as manufacturing recession, oil prices are where they're at, um, that 
he can apply an incredible amount of pressure for Europe to drop the sanctions as they continue to see natural gas inventories just falling and trickling down headed into October. And so- he's just there holding the strings. And it, it, I think it's kind of like, I've been thinking my kids do jujitsu and on Saturday mornings they get donuts and they're five and three and a half. And it's like, starting on Friday, I'm like, you better be good. Otherwise we're not going to go get donuts. And I, I it's kind of like that. I think Putin can just be like, well, I'll give you a little bit here. You better do what I like. Otherwise I'll turn it off. And I, I just, he's just, what are, what are they going to do? Well, I, and, and I, I talked about it um, in, in a LinkedIn discussion I was having with a gentleman who disagrees with my position on, on Russia. And I've basically said, A, a the ruble's at seven-year highs. So B, the Russian economy seems like it's doing great. Uh, C, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that says that the, the military equipment we've been giving to Ukraine is very limited in its range. For example, its missiles can only go 75 miles. It doesn't have the capacity to rebuild this without new stuff coming in. The Russian missiles can go two, 300 miles. They're constantly shelling. We're, we're being exposed to Western propaganda around, you know, what is Russia, what is their goal? Are they going to march further? You know, do they control whatever it is they control? And I've sort of said, look, there's no such thing as a moral good. And if we truly want to talk moral good, let's talk about the Uyghurs in China. Let's talk about energy poverty. Let's talk about access to fossil fuels so billions of people can have any sort of light at night to be able to further their education. If we want to talk about the moral good, there's a lot of topics we should talk about. But until then, we're only talking about competing interests. And the competing interests are Russia in a world that can sanction them and can seize their foreign asset reserves to prevent them from paying down debt. In that world, countries must own resources. And you go back to the Napoleonic era or the era of Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini, where colonial, I mean, the, the era of the UK, I mean, the, the empire of the, the, the British kingdom was huge because they were in resource capture mode. And so either goods cross borders or soldiers cross borders. Those are your choices. And so to me, this is not a moral question. This is a question of competing interests. And no doubt Putin is playing a much, much stronger strategic game while we're worried about what is a woman. Uh, Putin is going and just pummeling Europe's economy. Yeah, and it's all it's all ridiculousness. I mean, you, we also saw Saudis buying Russian fuel oil at a discount while we're over there begging for us. It's like they're powering their dirty grid, which is 99% oil and natural gas fired. Um, and, and, and they're just powering it at a cheaper rate. And then we're going to go ask them to use that cheap fuel oil to give us oil it's just it's absurd and 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 it is that it's it's power it's it's economics it's gamesmanship and we're playing social justice warrior over here against ourselves and when we have the best human rights record in the world when we allow gay people to get married and when you know most people in our age demographic really are down the middle of the road on this, I think, and not not to get into the social issues, but I think most people just want government out of everything and want government to support us as entrepreneurs, us in our careers, us developing local resources. We don't want to see the government ask 
these terrible dictators for energy. We want to make it here. And, and I feel like that reckoning is coming through exactly as you're saying, the prices and the pain that Americans are going to feel for the next whatever, 12 months plus. Well, and it's been it's been remarkable to me on that point. I mean, and I've, I've made this point often that the U.S. has backfilled growth going back to 2008 when the U.S. was producing 5 million barrels a day. By 2019, November 2019, we produced almost 13 million barrels a day. World demand grew from 92 million barrels a day to 100 over that same 11-year period. The U.S. filled 100% of the growth of the world. And, and we have depleted Tier 1 inventory. We, we have limited oil resources. Not that we won't produce for a very long time, but our ability to get to 20 million barrels is limited. And so, so, but we are extremely long the natural gas resource here with the Utica, with the Marcellus, with the Haynesville, with Associated Gas and the Permian, with all the stacked plays. It's been remarkable to me that, that we have not switched to CNG vehicle concepts. You know, 10 years ago when Encana, Vinziv now, but Encana at the time, that a VP of the natural gas economy who, very similar to Aubrey McClendon, was trying to push the end of coal to create a market for natural gas in 2002, 2003, when we really didn't have that market. And we pushed that, but we've gone away from it because they vilified natural gas so much. And yet Europe has now added natural gas and nuclear to the, to the list of what they're calling green investments. And the Germans have started considering delaying the closure of the last three uh, nuclear plants that were on, on slate to close at the end of this year. So perhaps we'll see this shift to U.S. consumer vehicles with lithium, lithium prices up more than 400%. I mean, uh, EVs are going crazy. The subsidies are going nowhere. And certainly, even if the, the House stays exactly as it does today and Senate stays exactly as it does today in the midterms, 2022 to 2024, they're not passing a single bill. The number one priority of this administration is going to be inflation and the COVID spike that we will inevitably see this this winter like there's there's no choice and so we're in a very interesting place around cng should be the fuel that the u.s transitions to if we want locally sourced gas and yet because of russian sanctions we're having to export more and more u.s gas to support europe while russia stockpiles natural gas that it can produce for years and years and years when the world becomes short. It's, it's truly short-sighted. Yeah. Why don't, well, I, I keep scratching my head. Why don't we see the heavy freight haulers and the, the, the trucking companies pushing for CNG and push, because I was just driving through LA yesterday and you drive through and you see downtown. And in front of that is the massive rail complex where all the shipping containers get moved over from the port. And these are either brought out on, on heavy rail which they're doing all sorts of things, trying to do hydrogen, all that. But why are why is the trucking fleet not going to CNG? Kind of the T Boone Pickens plan, and we talked to Nick Deulius about it a couple of weeks ago. I'm just so surprised because still it's seven dollars a gallon for diesel in that area, and now they're probably paying somewhere you know south of that with volume breaks but why aren't we going cng on the trucks you eliminate all the diesel particulate matter the engines are not that much more expensive than the diesel engines i just i don't understand is it the lobbying that we're lacking as an industry 
I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a lobbying. I think about do you know where the closest CNG uh, uh, gas station is to you? Um, there's a couple. I don't know. I've looked into it because I've thought about oh, I'm going to get a big diesel truck with with CNG. And no, I won't have to refill for it. So I, I so I think that's part of the issue as is I think the infrastructure around CNG is probably part of the issue. I mean, certainly, as you think about the strategy around EVs, a big part of build back better was building charging stations around the US so that you could um, there was a, there was an interesting post that if you drive between cities, you know, let's say you're going Dallas to Houston, let's say you're going, you know, Denver to, I'm trying to think of a place that's three or four hours away. Uh, yeah, where am I? Where am I? Where am I going to go? I guess Santa Fe. You don't see virtually any Teslas on the road long long haul, and so. Part of that is how do we build these super stations? I think that CNG is part of that. I also think that the, the companies that control the narrative, and, and, and by this I mean Facebook, I mean Amazon, I mean Apple, they're so big into the net zero and have been so big into this ESG, inconvenient truth, Al Gore stuff, that, that they haven't been the ones demanding that we move to CNG. So clearly we saw UPS expand their fleet. Oil and gas companies have used CNG from their plants in the past in some of their trucks. But um, and then and then I would also expect that because of volume, CNG engines would likely be more expensive than their their counterparts. So I'm sure there is an element of it's just more expensive and and a nine dollar MCF gas, I would make the argument that CNG is even more expensive without massively investing in the Marcellus and, and sort of following the EQT plan. Yeah, yeah. So we're on diesel. So, <laughs> so at the end of the day, we're on diesel. So we remain on diesel as we have for over a hundred years. Well, in the next ten days, as we head into August, what are you following? What are you watching? What do you think is going to move the energy needle? Um, that you think will be an interesting story for 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 our listeners to follow. Oh gosh, I'm so focused on California right now, trying to get our project going. I, you know, I I'm very interested to see how, uh, like I said, does Biden issue executive orders? I think that's really interesting to me. Um, what do those look like? Do they mirror what's happening in California? Because I my theory is. We all as an industry, as much as everybody in our industry doesn't want to, to be a part of California, doesn't want to see anything, it's, it's pervasive. And so um, my fear is that he's going to issue the same kind of nonsense that we get. Um, and then it's just going to create more uncertainty and regulatory risk for domestic production. Um, and we're going to see more push towards Chinese made batteries and, and solar panels and wind turbines and the whole deal. Um, it's just, I guess what I'm, what I'm wondering and what I'm always anticipating is when is the boomerang? When do we get so far out there and the prices get so bad that everybody says it's got to stop? Um, and, and so that's kind of what I'm always looking for daily headlines in the wall street journal and the LA times. And, um, it's, uh, it, it's interesting. It's just, it's just like, when does it stop? I guess is my thought going into August. Well, it, it ties for those listeners who've read, and I'm not. I'm going to acknowledge it is a it is a slog, but it is probably the best book I've ever read, other than in terms of like an eerie um, 
uh, Omnipresence would be 1984 by George Orwell. Um, uh, but Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And that was really where the concept of the shrub came from. I think as you talk about how much more pain can people take, I, I, we're close to the breaking point where we've seen active pushback. You know, Alex Berenson, for instance, is back on Twitter. Um, we've seen the market fall 10 or 15%. We've seen people actively coming out against ESG. Although there is a bill, I, I believe it's in the Senate, it might be in the House, that's trying to encourage all fiduciary managers to have to consider the ESG scores of the funds they're funding, even though the ESG companies have proven to underperform the value plays at this point. But that's neither here nor there. And I think you're seeing more and more people shrug some of these these virtue signaling, pedantic, you know, AOC. She was at a she was at an abortion march, I guess, uh, yesterday, and and she conveniently found herself getting escorted away by a police officer. And there's a great video. Strongly encourage you to find it. It's on the Daily Wire where she's just walking with her hands behind her back, making it look as though they've handcuffed her for the photo op. And then and then she waves to someone, which shows that very clearly she's been like virtue signaling that like she's being dragged away and it'll be part of a campaign video. So I think we're getting to the point where everyone's going to say F this. And my suspicion is unless the Russian sanctions are removed in the next two weeks, we are going to see nothing but a straight up climb in natural gas and oil prices between now and the midterms. And at some point we will break in the game of chicken. I think so. And then what keeping with Ann Rand, you, the first book I read of hers was the fountainhead. Yes. And that was such, I loved that one because it was like the independent, you know, free thinking architect. That's kind of like got his own vision of things and tying, tying into all this as it breaks. My, my other feeling is it's going to be the independents. It's going to be the smaller companies that innovate out of this and create, you know, George Mitchell was, was kind of the first to, to, although my Chevron buddies are like, Oh, we were fracking in California before him. But anyway, anyway, but you see a lot of innovation out of the independents. So I'm also equally hopeful for what the American independent entrepreneur is going to bring to to actually meet the needs of society, not just greenwash everything. Yeah, to our to our friends at Chevron, to them I would say I was the first to use the F word in the title of a book. Sadly, <laughs> I did not publish said book before Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. So he <laughs> actually holds the title of the first person to publish a book despite the fact that I read, wrote mine four years earlier. Nice. Um, so, so and agree, Fountainhead, phenomenal book. I read Atlas Shrugged first, it shocked my world. I yeah. read Fountainhead second. I've reread both of them recently. Yeah. And I would certainly say that from an independent thought, uh, the, Her the Howard Rourke architect character in the Fountainhead, I think is the strongest character. Yeah. And, and his battle against society and his refusal to conform right. resonates with, with myself these days more so perhaps, <laughs> but in terms of a societal approach, the great shrug is upon us and we're it's almost here. there. Absolutely. So we will, we will get Brian on the show uh, very soon. Apologize for not being able to get him here today. He had a conflict with the schedule. Uh, glad I could catch up with you, Mike. I look forward to our next recording and until Absolutely. next time. Be safe, be good, have a great day and bye for now.